Matthew chapter 8, sermon text for this morning. Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. We just sang that song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. As we think about uh, this morning, the joy, uh, the freedom that Christ gives to us. And um, as we've been talking about quite often in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, that we would rightly, at least in some sense, rightly estimate the value of Christ, um, the beauty of Christ, the glory of our salvation that we might freely and joyfully give ourselves uh, to this Savior, to the God-man, Jesus Christ, who calls us to to follow Him. And we see uh, yet another picture of of the Lord of all the earth. He is the Lord over uh, sickness, the Lord over death, the Lord over the curse. He is the Lord of nature, as we saw last week, as He calms the storm. And this week, He is the Lord of the spiritual realm, Lord of the spiritual realm, Uh, as Matthew presents him uh, to us in this string of miracles. This is another miracle account showing uh, the authority of Jesus uh, over uh, the invisible spiritual world that we know uh, exists. So, Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34, give your attention to God's holy word. The grass will wither, the flowers will fall, the word of the Lord endures forever. Matthew 8, 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs." And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us bow once more for prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before your word humbly. We ask that you give us your grace and your spirit that we might um, know your truth from this word. Cleanse your servant now as he proclaims it. Soften ears and hearts uh, that you might form, transform, change us uh, uh, according to uh, your will and uh, conforming us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, are you far too easily pleased? Are you far too easily satisfied? These questions are derived from a very famous passage in The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis pointed out that Christian joy, the the Christian life, is one that's not devoid of desires. It's not devoid of 
fulfillment and joy and happiness. But it's actually where the human heart finds that end for which it was made, that subject and object with whom we have to do the triune God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find fulfillment and and satisfaction in Him. Whom have I in heaven but you? Psalm 73 says. And on earth there is nothing that I desire besides you. When a human being communes with God in Jesus Christ, it is tapping into its very reason for existence. And yet what too often happens in both believers and unbelievers, right? Believers, unbelievers are blinded in their sin, uh, believers plodding along, often falling back into old habits. We're forgetful, we are fickle, and thus we often fail in this area. But what too often, often happens is we fail to realize the joy and contentment held out to us uh, by that communion that we have in and with Jesus Christ through faith. We're like children, Lewis would say, who are thoroughly pleased in the moment with making mud pies, sitting in the mud, covered in dirt, making mud pies, having fun. If you were to say to such a child and offer them a a lavish vacation, a very young child playing in mud, they would not have the, the categories to possess the ability to understand what you're offering. You offer them a uh, a lavish vacation, all expenses paid, all kinds of, of, of day trips and, and things to see while they are away. But they can think that nothing would be better than what I'm doing right now, making mud pies. So they refuse. Lewis says that th- this is the human condition. Those who do not realize the joy and the satisfaction through Christ. And so one pastor turns the question to us in a particularly pointed way. It says this, what is your mud pie? He goes on to say this, is it money? You will never have a bank account rich enough to satisfy you. Is it food? You will never have a meal filling enough to satisfy you. Is it pleasure? You will never have a sexual experience gratifying enough to satisfy you. Is it popularity? You will never have enough friends to satisfy you. Is it stuff? You will never accumulate enough possessions to satisfy you. Is it pornography? You will never find an image pleasing enough to satisfy you. Is it control? You will never have enough authority to satisfy you. Is it leisure? You will never have enough rest to satisfy you. Is it it success? You will never achieve enough to satisfy you. Is it freedom? You will never be lawless enough to satisfy yourself. So when Jesus Christ is held before you, is it your great joy to run from all of the false gospels of this world, away from all of the false promises, into the arms of the one who saves and who satisfies? Or are you like those in the region of the Gadarenes when seeing the powerful, the glorious, the wonderful salvation of Jesus chose the swine over the Savior, begging Jesus to leave and never come back. Let's consider these things together, blessed people of God. First, we see these demons are drawn to Jesus. These demons are drawn to Jesus. Darkness is is everywhere. Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee primarily not to find new opportunities for ministry, but to avoid the crowds. We read in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, when Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to go to the other side. And Jesus, being the 
Holy One, the God-man, the sinless Savior. There's always work to do. He is met by these demon-possessed men. Matthew 8, verse 28, he comes to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. Darkness, sin, covers the whole earth. Jesus will not go anywhere where his presence is ultimately welcomed. His presence is challenged. And as we see throughout his ministry, oftentimes he is, he is met by people such as these today who are under some kind of, of spiritual enslavement. First uh, John verse 5 says, We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's nowhere that Jesus can go where sin and darkness is not present. They live near the tombs, and that's kind of a, a very explicit piece of evidence is that the level of darkness that you're dealing with here, the unmasked nature of sin. Even the, the, the Gadarenes know that there's something very unnatural about this. So they, they dwell amongst the tombs. Death is then their more, most natural companion. As we read in Mark and Luke, they are extremely powerful, these men that are possessed uh, by demons that cause chaos. Their evil is, is obvious, it's very obvious. And yet what, what we see from, from this passage, from this account, is that evil and sin and uh, the armies of Satan can be more cunning than this, can't they? Evil can often be much more subtle, and we have to keep that in mind as well when we Come, to, come against passages such as these. Ephesians chapter 6 says this, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2, we, uh, we would not be, so Paul calls the believers to do certain things so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs, his schemes, the wiles of the devil as the old King James puts it. We also read elsewhere that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul speaks of this when he's talking about false teachers who are then the servants of Satan who disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. So sin can be much more subtle than this. And indeed, perhaps for our consideration, we need to see how dangerous that actually is. The subtlety of sin and darkness and evil, to see the way in which sometimes the sins that we make excuses for are hard evidence of the activity of evil in our lives. It's sometimes more dangerous to be dead in sin, but living an outwardly normal and respectable life. Like those who live in this region, they've expelled these men who are living in, in light of this very obvious and powerful presence of evil, but they ask Jesus to leave. They want nothing to do with the Savior. Sins that are not expelled from society are signs of Satan's presence and influence just the same. William Gurnall has a very famous work on spiritual warfare, and he says this, what the Spirit of God does in a saint, Satan does in a diabolical sense in a sinner. The Spirit fills the heart with love, joy, holy desires. Satan fills the sinner's heart with pride, lust, and lying. Like the drunkard filled with wine, the sinner filled with Satan is not his own man, but an impotent slave. It should make us fear sin of all stripes, shouldn't it? Especially those which we allow into our lives. The, 
the kinds of shows or movies that we make excuses for and we watch. And it's not participating outwardly in these acts of, uh, of whatever, but we can just sort of take it in. It's not sexual immorality, it's just immodesty. These are the kinds of rationalizations that we often make. Isn't it true? I'm not a violent person, I'm just angry in my heart. We see how these demoniacs were slaves of demonic influence, but by the end of the passage, they are the ones that are set free. The The town dwellers are not. The authority of Jesus is clearly on display as these demons, though filled with hatred and fear, what do they do? They present themselves to Jesus. It's almost like you sense that they don't want to, but the the very presence of Jesus summons them. As I mentioned before, this is a passage that shows us that Jesus Christ is the Lord not only of nature, he is the Lord of the spiritual realm as well. Nothing happens here outside of Jesus' will and permission. He is sovereign. He is in control. He is the one who is directing all the things that happen. They come to meet him. He is summoned to them. When Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples said, What sort of man, what manner of man is this that the winds and the sea obey him? Well, interestingly enough, these demon-possessed men, these demons speaking through these men, say what Jesus is. The Son of God, which is a, a, a rich affirmation of who Jesus is. It is kind of the, the, the full recognition of the reality of Jesus. Not only his uh, power, but his person. They're saying they know that he is the one sent of God, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. They know that he will ultimately be victorious as they converse with Jesus, don't they? Have you come to judge us, to torment us before the time? In other words, there will be a time when you will, and we know that, we understand that. So they know something of Jesus, and yet they hate him. Don Carson says, to know Jesus and yet hate him, that is demonic. So the turn for us, that which we consider for ourselves here, this first point, we ought to beware of knowledge of Jesus that does not save There is a knowledge of Jesus that does not save. There's a difference between knowledge and saving knowledge. Saving knowledge brings us to that from the heart, resting in Christ, trusting in his work on behalf of sinners and on behalf of your sin specifically. It's the difference between knowledge and true belief. 1 John chapter 5 says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. What does it mean to have the Son? To have him as your own. To be able to know that you have reached out and appropriated for yourself the saving benefits of Christ. It's to be united with him by faith in the gospel, isn't it? It's to be plunged into his death. It's to be represented with him as your priest and your Lord. Knowledge which does not save is knowledge which is not accompanied by trust in his work, and submission to his lordship. 
these demons are drawn to Jesus, but they give us the warning of knowledge which does not save. Then, secondly, a dawning dominion. A dawning dominion. This is a kingdom of God account. The kingdom of God is on the move here. Mark and Luke have different accounts of this, and those are probably the the more well-known ones. It's not two men there. It's one in both Mark and Luke, and that's where they say uh, the, the demons answer that their name is Legion, for they are many. And so Mark and Luke are more focused on kind of the spiritual brokenness of the situation, and they describe more fully the salvation that the man experiences. They describe him as one who goes forth and tells the region about Jesus, which is interesting because Jesus then leaves because the Gadarenes say, we don't want you here. Please leave us. But he leaves there a missionary for the kingdom of God to go and proclaim the the good news of of Jesus Christ. So that's what Mark and Luke are focused on. Why is Matthew, why is his account come to us this sort of way? Well, it's because it's an account that has to do primarily with Jesus' authority as the king of his kingdom. As I said, the kingdom is on the move. Note the question that the demon-possessed men posed to Jesus. What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Their question is almost one of surprise. They, They expected that Jesus ought to come later. The Son of God will come later, but why is he here now? And, and, and they ask, they're surprised that he is here. What does that word here mean? Is it here in the, the region of the Gadarenes? That's possible. Why has he come into Gentile territory when he is a Jewish king? He was sent to the, the lost sheep of the people of Israel to redeem Israel. So why are you here in this Gentile territory? Probably what's going on here is why are you here on earth? Why have you come down from heaven? They are surprised that the Son of God has come to the realm in which they have been given freedom to work before the time stepped onto their turf. This is one of the mysteries of Christ's two comings. He comes saving people, redeeming people, giving them a heavenly existence, but not finally judging his enemies. And you see that in this account. They, they go from men into the swine. The Jesus comes not finally judging them and yet saving, redeeming, extending the boundaries of his kingdom. And so we see here the, the, the power of the kingdom on display. The freeing of these men by the word of Jesus' power. The presence of Jesus, the exercise of his power, limits the power of the armies of Satan. Jesus will talk about this later in Matthew 12. If it is by the Spirit of God that it cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's evidence of the kingdom of God. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So he has come to bind the power and the authority of Satan and the dark forces of evil so that the kingdom of God might be extended. In Jesus' earthly ministry, that is what he, did, he does. He binds Satan and his armies from a specific thing. Now, we know that evil is present and active in our world. We don't need to be convinced of that. But because the gospel, because salvation has gone forth and is going forth into all of the world, that is uh, evidence of the binding of Satan and his forces because the nations prior to Christ's coming were kept essentially in utter darkness. 
And so the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is now being proclaimed throughout the world. And do you think that Satan is pleased with this arrangement? No, he is not. But he has been bound from keeping the nations in utter darkness. As Christ is proclaimed, sinners give their lives and hearts to him and his reign advances through the world. In other words, Satan's house is now being plundered through the advance of the gospel. And this is why we do not go around. Normally, the normal, ordinary work of God's people is not going around casting out demons. What do we do? We proclaim the gospel so that Jesus can save. We even have to consider, there are very many, there are many strange things in the spiritual world and we're not going to have all the answers that we want in, in this life. There are many strange things uh, that happen. But even leaning upon the doctrine of the, the sufficiency of Scripture. As the Scripture does not give us a, a how-to instruction manual to do the kinds of things that Jesus is doing here. Casting out demons by the word of His power. So what is it that we do? We proclaim the gospel of Christ. We call sinners to repent because when the gospel gives life to a dead heart, when uh, a heart is turned unto Jesus Christ and runs to Him, it becomes property of God's kingdom. It becomes Christ's own territory. It's the battleground of this war is, is the human heart. And so it should not surprise us as we try to, to make application to our, our current context, it should not surprise us that Satan, one of Satan's primary strategies is to overturn the gospel, overturn gospel ministry, to blind unbelievers from the gospel of grace, to convince believers to doubt the gospel, to lead churches into errors in which they lose the gospel. To go back to William Gurnall, he says this, Do you wonder that Satan works so hard to dispossess the gospel which dispossesses him? What is the power of God that we have? The message of forgiveness through Jesus Christ, the Savior. That's the power of the kingdom. That is how God's people are to go through this world proclaiming forgiveness. That people might give their lives and hearts to him in faith and reliance and trust. That's the power of the kingdom. That brings us then to, to the comfort of the kingdom. What's the comfort of the kingdom? Well, as I mentioned, there are, many, there are many strange things that happen in this world. There is a spiritual realm where principalities and powers are at war. Obviously, Christ is Lord of all of it, and, and we have to recognize that and, and to know that. But in a world of much that we do not understand and recognizing that there is this spiritual realm which we can't see, about which we would like to know more, we must see the comfort of hiding in the one who exercises all power and authority over this realm. How can you take comfort knowing that there are these things happening in a world that you cannot see? Where is your comfort? It's running to Christ. It's hiding in him. Colossians chapter 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If Christ is your refuge, if he is your strength, if he is your hiding place, you need not fear the kinds of things that you see in this passage. Make Christ your hiding place, your refuge. Rely upon him in all, with all of your heart. See, in a sense, it becomes a piece of wisdom. It is profoundly wise 
to throw all of your confidence on the Lord of the spiritual realm, the one who exercises all authority in this passage. Run to him. Make him your savior. I'll quote William Gurnall one more time. These words are very important for us to hear. He says this, Satan's conquests are limited to ignorant, graceless souls who have neither strength nor sense to oppose him. They are born imprisoned in sin. All he has to do is keep them there. But when he assaults a saint whose freedom was won at the cross once for all, then he is laying siege to a city with gates and bars. Sooner or later, he must retreat in shame, unable to pluck the weakest saint out of the Savior's hand. Then he says this, Doubt your own strength, but never doubt Christ's. In your gravest conflicts with Satan, trust him to bring you out of the devil's dominion with a high hand in spite of all the force and fury of hell. What he's saying is what has been said by so many people and what we find so often in Scripture. You are safe in Christ. You are safe in Christ. John Newton says just that. How safe are the people whom Christ takes under his care? While his eye is upon them, his ear to their prayer, his arm of power stretched out for their protection, while he remembers that promise, your life is hidden with Christ in God. It is impossible that any weapon or strategy formed against them shall prevail. There are many, it is true, who will rise up against them, but God is for them, and with them a very present help in times of trouble. Take your comfort, your strength, your courage in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Why did Jesus allow then, as he casts out the demons, we wonder, why did he allow them to go into the pigs? A very fascinating, very fascinating passage, isn't it? Well, a couple of, of reasons why it, it may have been. It first shows us the superior value of human beings over animals. Jesus saves, and it's not a, a lateral move here. He, he does redeem these men. It shows us the superior value of the image of God. There's a recognition that his first coming does not do away with sin and darkness, but rather limits it. It shows us kind of the nature of Christ's two comings. And then finally, it illustrates that the human heart will struggle to see Jesus and his salvation rightly. The human heart will struggle to see the wonder of the salvation that takes place here. Because even seeing these men set free, what do the Gadarenes do? They ask Jesus to leave. So our final point this morning is this, the damnation of depravity. The damnation of depravity. The people know two things, right? These men were out of their minds. They were extremely violent. They were dangerous. We kept them out of our society. They lived amongst the tombs. They have been set free, and we just lost a herd of pigs. Those are the two things that they know. And so faced with these two things, are they more thankful because the men have been saved or are they more upset about the loss of the pigs? They're upset about the swine that have been lost. They would rather keep their local economy running rather than see people delivered from their affliction. There's a, there's a tragedy, isn't there, to their blindness in this, uh, faced with this question. They see the wondrous salvation of, of Christ, the joy of those who were saved, 
And yet, what do they do? They panic. They reject Jesus. William Hendrickson comments, he says this, the the people of this region were heartless. They did not rejoice with those who were rejoicing. They did not praise Jesus for having bestowed unfathomable blessing on two shockingly distressed individuals. They did not even bring their sick to Jesus that he might heal them, nor did they ask him to heal their souls. They could think of only one thing, namely the loss of these pigs. We also see that although the Gospel of Matthew is largely an indictment upon the people of Israel, the unbelieving of of the nation who reject their Messiah, it does not mean that Gentiles automatically believe in the Savior. It's not a, a perfect reversal. Rather, the Gospel of Matthew teaches us what is it about a human being that is most important about him or her, their response to Jesus. What do they believe about Jesus? What is their response to him? When we see, what we see in the hearts of the Gadarenes is an unwillingness not only to, uh, to rejoice in Jesus' salvation, but also to pay the cost that comes with belonging to Jesus. And in that, what is really at work? A failure to see what salvation really is. They're, if they're saying, we don't want to lose any more swine, they don't know anything about the salvation of Christ, do they? It's seeing that the best thing you can have is the mud pie in front of you. What a tragedy. That they would expel from their region the one who is the resurrection and the life. The one through whom freedom from sin and the curse and suffering and death might be had. And they sent him away. The only one in whom life can be found. In a way, these Gadarenes are like King Ahab who called Elijah the troubler of Israel. You remember that? Called Elijah the troubler troubler of Israel because Elijah was bringing the truth of God to the people and it was uncomfortable because it demanded change. It demanded submission. It meant dying to self. It meant mortifying sin. It meant smashing idols. It meant fighting for righteousness and for holiness. Jesus and his gospel are troublers of the heart in that he demands that we come and die to ourselves and give up that which we did not want to do otherwise. So we ask in closing, in returning to how we opened, what is your mud pie? Is it success? Is it recognition? Is it some pleasure? Is it freedom? The freedom to live the way you want to live. Look at the tragedy that you see here, even amidst the wondrous deliverance of Jesus. Look at the freedom, the life, the restoration that he grants. Would a human heart leave that all on the table because of a mud pie? Because that is what we see time and time and time again as people say, no, I don't want Christ. I don't want him. I want him to leave. So will you see the glory and the beauty, the wonder of Christ and his salvation and come to him that you may have life to bring your sin, your discomforts, to bring your pleasures, your sinful pleasures, those things, to bring them all to Jesus and to come to him in faith and repentance. 
We say that to the unbeliever who knows not Christ. And we say this to the believer. If you have come to Christ that you may have life, and you have wandered, and you're in the mud, return to Him. Admit that you have spent too much time on your mud pie. You have often chosen swine over the Savior, so come and rest in Him. And by His grace, may we see those idols dead at our feet before we take our dying breath. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing upon these considerations and this word, this powerful, authoritative word that you give to us. Might it change our hearts and lives, and may we go forth loving you more, devoted to you more. For your glory and honor, we pray. Amen. We respond uh, by singing number 657.